As you take your seats, take out your Bibles, if you were standing. We continue now, we're heading towards the climax, the end of the book of Acts. Luke chapter 2, Luke book book 2, the the other gospel of Luke, as we started out some six months ago as we began this book, and we find now Paul finishing up this time in, in Caesarea Maritima, and he's now going to face King Agrippa. Now, this is King Agrippa II. His wife's name is Bernice, who happens to also be his sister. So this is a very incestuous relationship. It's part of the Herodian dynasty, and it is this particular king who's going to meet now again with the Apostle Paul in this theater in Caesarea Maritima. Except the unique thing about Agrippa is that he is half Jewish. Uh, the Idumean Empire, uh, those from the land of Eden, Edom, so the Edom Mountains are on the southern part of the nation of Jordan. Matter of fact, we were just there a little over a week ago. Uh, about 10 days ago, to be exact, as we visited the rock city of Petra, uh, the land of the Nabataeans, uh, this group of uh, traders that controlled the spice routes that ran between Saudi Arabia and the coast, the Mediterranean coast. So this land of Idumea, or Edom, is kind of the, the home country uh, of this group of rulers that included, beginning with Herod the Great, So this man of tiny stature with incredible uh, expertise in building who's responsible for building this city that now one of his sons, uh, Herod Agrippa, and one of his daughters who is now the wife of his son. Uh, So you can kind of see the messed up nature of politics during that day, amen? Uh, It hasn't changed much. Politics very often flies in the face of the truth of God's word. And so as you look at this ladder of political hierarchy, as we now turn our attention to verse 23 uh, here in Acts 25, and we'll also take chapter 26 tonight. Uh, But we see there in verse 23, And so the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come uh, with great pomp, they had entered the auditorium, they had entered the theater there in Caesarea, with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And so here is a place that we could look at that's a crisis. This could be an opportunity. Uh, It's the same exact place. So now we have the actual king standing on the, the Bema seat there in the theater. And as he begins to speak, surrounding that that theater would have been all of the prominent people. So you've gone from Felix to Festus to now literally the king of the region, uh, this appointed king by the Romans. And, and so as you begin to kind of look at this, you would think that this is not a real good situation uh, for the Apostle Paul. But if you remember back in chapter 23, the Lord stood by the Apostle Paul and said, you will preach to the Gentiles, and you will preach in Rome. And so God has made a promise to the Apostle Paul, and what we find here in the remaining portion of these two chapters is that Paul is going to make a way for that to happen. And so when you look at your own life, things that seem like they're unfair, things that seem like they're uh, not working out the way that you would want them to, things that you would seem like Uh, from your limited perspective, not being God, and my ability to see things and not being God, uh, you almost look at the situation, it's like, what is God doing? And why is he doing it this way? But we're going to see that God knows exactly what he's doing. And so uh, the story begins to unfold for us. So now into the room comes a new governor. Remember that this has now taken years Paul spent two years under the questioning of Felix. He's now faced Festus. Festus has appealed even higher up the political food chain to Agrippa. Agrippa and his bride uh, now come into this uh, amazing 
theater setting where they're going to make a public spectacle of this trial. These are very important people. And it's interesting to me, from human perspective, one could say that Paul is the prisoner. Uh, that's the, the actual reality that Paul faces. But in a much more greater and more infinite way, from God's perspective, it's really Agrippa and Bernice and the Roman soldiers that are really the prisoner because God's got them right where he wants them. And the Apostle Paul is going to deliver the goods as he opens up uh, in front of these prominent men. Now, I would remind you that Jesus, one of the things that he said to his disciples and you find it recorded in Luke chapter 12, was this. When you are brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you're going to defend yourselves or what you'll say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. The Apostle Paul doesn't have a ton of books. He doesn't have notes. He's not you know, writing a, a legal brief, if you will, so that he can defend himself. But we're going to see that principle come into play uh, in Paul's unbelievably exemplary life. And so now he's got a new audience. He's got a new group of people. And very often that persecution that we face in our lives as believers is actually God's gigantic opportunity for us to share the gospel with people. The way you respond is is exactly uh, God's tool very often to, to work in people's lives. And so pick up now in verse 24. And then Festus said to King Agrippa, and all present, this is the man whose death is demanded by the local Jews and by those in Jerusalem. And so they're making a case, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation right now. But in my opinion, he has done nothing worthy of death. However, he appealed his case to the emperor, the emperor, and I decided to send him. So we know that ultimately the Apostle Paul is going to go to Rome. But Festus, as the Roman governor, is now in charge of this court, so he's kind of making sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and every legal procedure that needs to be undertaken is done so in a, in, in a way that's going to, be, uh, going to be able to stand up in Roman court when he finally gets there. And because Paul has, has presented his, his, his standing as a Roman citizen, he's entitled for it to go to Rome. But he goes on in verse 26, but I have nothing definite to write to our sovereign about him. And there's a reason for that. Paul's explained his situation. Paul's appealed to, to those that have brought the case against him. He says, look, there's, there, there's nothing that you can accuse me of. I've lived my life uh, completely blameless in the matter that you have accused me of, of being somehow a criminal. And therefore, it says, I've brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. In other words, there is no case against the Apostle Paul. He's done nothing wrong. You're going to find out in your lives that as you face criticism, ultimately it's because you stand for the Lord Jesus Christ that you're going to be ridiculed. And people really aren't going to have a reason for why they're going to ridicule you. They just don't like the gospel message because they don't know the Lord. And so because they persecuted the Lord, they're going to persecute you. And the same is still true for us today as it was for Paul in that day. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. In other words, now they're going to try and come up with some spot-on details and that's really what happens as we pick up in verse 26, explaining the reasoning for this whole gathering. Uh, they're trying to, to put some kind of, of paperwork together so that when Paul goes to Rome, they can actually send something with him and say, this is the reason the guy's coming to Rome, so that you can uh, put him on trial. But Paul hasn't broken any civil laws. And in, 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 uh, very much in the same way that, that we see in the book of Daniel, there, especially in Daniel chapter 6, there's really nothing that Daniel and his friends have done, except he has integrity, except he won't bow, except he won't change his story. Uh, and so in that sense, Paul is now going to face persecution really for no reason. And your, your enemies are, are going to, to always examine your life. They're going to try and find something about you, some reason to blame the Lord uh, for why for why they don't want to, to follow Christ. They're going to try and figure something out. 
So get ready for it. And I actually ask you a question. You know, what's going to happen, in essence, uh, if, if your life was put under the same type of microscope that Paul's is put under in this particular situation, what is going to be the information that comes out of that? What will happen when people look at your life and, and view uh, how you've lived it? And so Paul's going to now begin his defense. This is the longest speech in the entire book of Acts. And Paul's going to re-document uh, his already well-documented past. And in fact, chapter 9, chapter 22, we see much of the same details. And so for the sake of that, we're going to cover all of it tonight, uh, all of chapter 26, uh, so that we can, we can kind of put it into the context. Uh, and so Paul begins by saying, and then here, here he's going to be addressed by Agrippa. And so Agrippa says to Paul, uh, you can now speak your defense. And so Paul with the gesture of a hand. Now remember that Paul's had two years of practice. He's been in the same theater. He's come and gone. He sat before kings. He sat before magistrates. He sat before Roman cohorts. A cohort is a captain of a thousand. So he, we're going to see yet another larger group. And actually we see five captains of the cohort, which means in the city of Caesarea, there would have been at least 5,000 Roman soldiers. So there is a massive Roman presence in this coastal city. And the Apostle Paul is now going to get yet another opportunity to reiterate what it is that he believes. And you're going to see something that we should all take stock in. And that is he doesn't change the message. He has the opportunity to say some things that could get him set free and he does exactly the opposite. Because he really, truly believes that God's called him and is going to send him to Rome. And so I think in some ways, uh, he actually takes this as an opportunity to just simply say what's necessary to keep the trial going, so to speak. And so Paul, with a gesture of his hand, starts his defense. He says, I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense against these accusations made by Jewish leaders. For I know that you're an expert on Jewish customs and controversies. And now please listen to me patiently. And again, the New Living Translation uh, gives us a little more modern rendering uh, in the English language. And so Paul's going to make his apologetic statement. He's going to use the same word as he makes this case that we would use when we say uh, the study of apologetics or we make an apology or we, we give, in essence, a defense of oneself. And so he gestures, oratorically speaking, he's like, so here's my case. This is what I have to say about the things that I'm accused of. And He's going to now recount this story that he's told a couple of times before with a couple of subtle differences. And we know that in this case, King Agrippa, because he's half Jewish, his sister Bernice is half Jewish, they understand all things Jewish. And so he's really got an opportunity to kind of get himself out of trouble if he wants to. And yet he doesn't do that. He just tells the story exactly uh, the way you would expect someone who wants to preach the gospel to, to speak it. So verse 4, he goes on to say, that all the Jews know my way of life from my youth, a life spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known for a long time, and if they're willing to testify that I have belonged to the strictest sect of our religion and lived as a Pharisee, he says, look, of these things that I'm being accused, you think I would defile the temple? Do you, do you think I would not believe in what the prophets had said? I, I lived as a Pharisee. That's my life. There's nothing in me. Matter of fact, we know because we've already been told that he stuttered un, studied under the, the great Rabbi Gamaliel. And so he is of the strictest sect of the Jewish people, the Pharisees. And so remember that they were the legalists uh, of the Jewish people. And so they were the ones that were the most hardcore. And as Paul says this, he's establishing there's no doubt that he, uh, he's thorough, he's serious, he, he's excellent in all the things that, uh, that would be Jewish. And so he's, he's really making a case. Look, I, there's, what are you accusing me of? They were renowned. The Pharisees were of their meticulous commitment to the knowledge of the scriptures, their law, and they were hyper-scrupulous 
and the way that they attended under the traditions and the, and the laws and the way that they were uh, taken into account in their own lives. And he goes on in verse 6, he says, Now I'm on trial because I'm looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise made to our answers. He says, You're really going to put me on trial? Because I actually believe what, in essence, the Old Testament says? Are, are you actually accusing me of that? He says, if you're accusing me of that, I believe it. I believe God's word is true. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes, it goes on to say, of Israel worship God night and day. And they share the same hope that I have. So he's saying, look, I, I would go to temple and agree with everything that the prophets have ever written. And yet, O king, they say it's wrong for me to have this hope. I can't have the hope of the prophets. And here's a beautiful thing about the gospel. When you think about the Old Testament, when you think specifically about the prophetic word of God contained in the Old Testament, the major prophets, the minor prophets, when they're writing, especially when they wax messianic, when you're you're talking about the writings of Isaiah and the writings of Daniel and Zechariah, uh, many of David's psalms, which are messianic, is, is you look at those writings they're testifying of the same Jesus that the Apostle Paul now believes in. And so he's simply saying, look, we knew Messiah was coming, and oh, by the way, Messiah's come. I know him. He says, you're going to put me on trial for that? Our heritage, and understand this well, church, our heritage as the church is a deep, rich heritage that comes to us via the Jewish people. The Jewish prophets, the Jewish Torah, the Jewish Tanakh. We have a shared history in that regard. Because our Savior is decidedly and distinctly Jewish at birth. That's why Jesus could say without any qualification, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. And so when Jesus said that, he was being truthful. Why? Because they testified of him. The apostles making that same exact argument. It was an absurdity that was being attacked for the hope that all Jewish people held on to, that they still hold on to. Today at Passover, there's a place set for Elijah who is to come. They're still looking for the prophetic fulfillment of of Messiah. Verse 8, he goes on in chapter 26. Why does this seem incredible to any of you that God would raise the dead? Now remember there's two basic sects at that time. You have the Pharisees on one side, the Sadducees on the other. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did. And and so is he speaking to a man who has an understanding of, of the Jewish way of thinking, specifically the way of thinking that would have belonged to the Pharisees, he says, how could it be incredible to you that God could raise the dead? And here's the reason he says that. Because the first five books of Moses, specifically the first book of Moses, the book of Genesis, clearly says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness hovered over the face of the waters. So he's saying, look, before there was any of you, there was nothing. And God created everything that is out of that nothing. So are you really telling me that God can't raise the dead when he actually created the universe and everything in it? So he's actually appealing to their sensibilities about what they know about the Bible. Specifically the Bible that they had, which would have been the Old Testament. So he's saying, look, do you guys have a problem with God raising the dead? Is that really the issue? Are, are you going to accuse me of believing something that's so wacky? When in fact, every Jew believed that there was a creator God. And if they believed he could create the world from nothing, then they shouldn't have a problem believing that he can raise the dead. Why was it incredible was his basic uh, question that he's answering. And and the hope of Israel was always tied to God's ability to raise the dead in the last day. Well documented. Now now remember that the Apostle Paul has actually 
now been privy to the, the finished plan of God, and so he's, he's now one of those men that can testify that Jesus Christ has been raised for the dead because it was Jesus who met Paul in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. And so he says, why is that such a big deal to you? And the power of God, in essence, is just simply one of Paul's points here. He's just saying, look, this is, just, this is something you actually believe as a Jewish person. Verse 9, he says, And I was convinced, too, that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So now he's going back to, he says, look, I used to think the way you think. I used to understand things the way you understand them. So much so that I was on my way, and we met him in Acts 9, on the way to the, on the road to Damascus to do the very thing that you're trying to do to me right now. I was doing what you're doing. So I get it. He's a, this is a brilliant oratory move. He, he's, he's saying, look, I thought the same thing. But he's going to explain to him why he no longer feels that way. He, he names himself as one who theoretically believes in the resurrection of the dead as a solidly, in essence, educated. He was in a yeshiva. He's there studying. He, he's, he's in Torah school, and he believed that the dead could be raised. He said, look, I, I, I believe that. But he not only, in his beginning walk with the Lord, not only refused to believe in Jesus of Nazareth, as being rec- uh, resurrected, but he was also convinced that he should do everything he could to stop anyone who thought such a thing. But something happened to him. Verse 10, he goes on to say, Look, I was authorized by the leading priest. I caused many of the believers in Jerusalem to be sent to prison. So now he starts to explain what he used to do. Again, Acts 9, Acts 22 give much of the same information. I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. You imagine the Apostle Paul holding on to, to the garments of those who are stoning Stephen. He says, you know, I, I was on the enemy's team myself. Many times I had them whipped in the synagogue to try and get them to curse Christ. So I was doing everything I did, could to convince people uh, not to believe and was so violently opposed to them that I even hounded them to distant cities of foreign lands. And of course, we know that one of those distant cities was Damascus in Syria. Some believe that as the Apostle Paul speaks these things, he's kind of he's getting out a little bit of information that will hopefully get back to the Jewish council. But the fact of the matter is, is most of Paul's early work as he's evangelizing, was began in the synagogue, and then he would take it out to the streets and, and to the Gentiles. As Paul was using his voice to be passionate and violently opposed to the gospel, uh, he, he basically was a one-man terror uh, of the people called those of the way. And on one of these journeys, verse 12 says, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the high priests. And so he's on one of those journeys. The same, very same group that is now attacking Paul was the group that sent him to Damascus. So it gives you a sense of exactly how deeply ingrained that hatred was for the freedom of the gospel. What was happening in their lives. People being set free. His former employers basically have now turned on him. These are the guys that sent me to Damascus, and now they're after me. He's still recounting in verse 13 what happened. And about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, would have been the common language, the spoken language uh, of the region. Remember, he's traveling uh, up through what we now call the Golan Heights. He, he's gone around uh, the Sea of Galilee. He's, he's passed by the city of Dan. Uh, he's on the road to Damascus. He's probably 30, 40 miles from the city. And, and there he, he's all of a sudden in Aramaic, he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
And then a, a, a phrase that's found here that's different than the other uh, two accounts. It is hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? He says, look, I, I, I've, been, I've been trying to push you my direction and you've been fighting me. Now, we know that it was the Lord and it's easy to kind of imagine King Agrippa and all of his finery and his pomp and his circumstance and he's sitting on the, the Bema seat and Bernice is next to him and they're kind of like, wow, this is a pretty good story. The Apostle Paul is speaking with his hands. And he says, here I'm on the road to Damascus. And you can almost see the crowd up in the stands and they're like, Really? Nobody was Googling and no smartphones. Yeah, I think I've heard this before. Because we're now years since that Damascus Road experience. But central to all three accounts in the book of Acts is the voice that comes from heaven. God spoke to him. God met him. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus says to him. And so the picture here is that Paul wasn't persecuting so much the church as he was persecuting the cross of Christ and Christ himself. That's why Jesus said, know this, when you are persecuted, they'll persecute you because they persecuted me. They hate you because they hated me. And he says, look, the ox goat is, is sharp. One of the ways that they would get a, an oxen to, to go in a straight line to continue the direction it wanted to go, the goads were normally actually large spikes put on a wooden bar suspended by rope over the rear legs of the oxen. And as long as the oxen walked in a straight line, it did not hit the goads. But if the oxen decided it wanted to change direction, then immediately those sharp sticks went right in the back of the Achilles of the animal. So you can imagine, uh, it would be pretty hard to kick against the goads. In other words, change direction. God's trying to say, Paul, I want you to go this way. And you want to go that way. I want you to go this way. It was hard, Paul. I made it difficult for you. To not do what I'm asking you to do. You had to really fight me to get where you wanted to go. And it's true of us as, as the body of Christ as well. And you can probably all look back to those moments in your own life where you were kicking against the goads of God. You're like, the Lord's speaking to you. The Lord's put people in your life. The gospel's been spoken to you. And if you haven't experienced this, chances are... Uh, maybe you missed that experience, but most people will, will have that place where God's kind of hemmed them in. God will use every means possible to get you to that place where he can speak into your life. He'll speak to you through burning bushes and stone tablets. He'll speak through your enemies, the People will shout at you with those things. People will throw rocks at you. There will be handwriting on the wall, prophets, visions, dreams, the creation itself, talking donkeys, still small voices, even little babies born in a manger in Bethlehem. That's God speaking and making things clear. But mankind still kicks against the goats. That's too narrow. I know you want me to go, but I want to go this way. God's always speaking. The question is, are we listening? Or are we trying to do our own thing? Verse 15. Paul's still speaking. He says, who are you, sir, I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting. Stand up, for I've appeared to you to uh, appoint you as my servant and my witness. You, you are to tell the world about this experience and about other times that I will appear to you 
And, and so Paul has a personal time with the Lord Jesus. This information that's going to follow now in verse 17 is unique to this account. And remember those differences, and I want to remind you of this. The Gospels are often uh, accused of having inaccuracies or contradictions. But it's actually one of the ways that we identify that they are in fact first-hand accounts by eyewitnesses to the events. Because if we take all of you and we show a video clip up here and I ask you to write down what happened, I guarantee you there will not be a single account in this room that will be exactly the same as any other account. You'll all get major portions of it. You'll have things that are very similar. Some of you will see the color. Some of you will see the movement. Some of you will see the parts. Some will see the major themes. One of the testifying facts that we have that these things are not fabricated by someone else is the fact that the basic details are there with the individual authors seeing their specific portion that is a, a sure sign that is their personal account as opposed to simply regurgitating what somebody else said they saw or said they heard or a story that someone else is telling about someone else's experience. And so Paul simply tells it like it is. And when your experience is your experience, you can just tell it. And people can choose to believe it or not, but the fact that he's now, in essence, given these same details, this is the third time in the book of Acts, we, we know that the Apostle Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus spoke to him. And he says, look, Saul, what are you doing? Verse 17, and now the the difference between the accounts in chapter 9 and 22. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. Now who is it that's actually after the Apostle Paul now? So there's a huge reason for why this exists now as he's speaking to this specific group of people. God had actually told the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, I will rescue you from your people. Paul couldn't have imagined that he was actually going to be persecuted by the people who sent him. But now that part of the story comes into view, and so the Apostle Paul speaks that part of the story. I am sending you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness unto light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me pretty sobering start to your ministry when you think about it the commission that Paul receives predicting the work of the Messiah in places that didn't want to hear it but there were places that the prophet Isaiah had already spoken into their lives prophet David had spoken into their lives Zechariah had spoken into their lives Daniel had spoken into their lives Ezekiel had spoken into their lives and so the apostle Paul says look I'm going to tell you about the one who's actually the fulfillment of what you already know. The Old Testament prophecies, speaking of the the coming one, the Messiah. And it's interesting because you're going to see kind of the, the three basic excuses in these rulers in just a moment. But this is a this is a clear picture of why it's necessary for us to keep the main thing the main thing. Because it is the gospel that saves... It's not the polished delivery. It's not a suit. It's not a building. Uh, Though God can use sound systems and PowerPoint and all those kind of things, it's not those things that save. It is the gospel of God that saves. It's the message of the cross of Christ, that Jesus Christ is God's own son, that he was put to death, that he was placed in a grave, He was raised three days later by the power of God. And after he was raised, he was seen by thousands of people ultimately. That's the gospel message. It's not all the prophetic stuff that saves people's lives. That just testifies that God told us in advance what he was going to do. Very important, wonderful information. But the Apostle Paul sticks to the main message. This is, look, this is about the resurrected Christ. 
Today you have people just like Agrippa, just like Festus, just like Felix. They have the same exact excuses as to why they don't want to believe on the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19, he goes on and he says, And after that, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He says, says, look, I'm on my way to Damascus as a Pharisee. I've been appointed by the religious Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, specifically by the Sanhedrin and by the high priest himself. I've been commissioned to go put people in chains who believe the very thing that I now believe. That's pretty strong testimony. When you turn somebody's heart around so much that they were initially persecuting the very people that they themselves have now become, that's a pretty strong testimony that that person really believes what they're saying. You know, if the Apostle Paul had just kind of, well, you know, I'm going to tolerate Christians. Well, I don't agree with them, but... No, he not only says, not only do I agree with them, I became one of them. Christ is my life. He said, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus. He says, on the road to Damascus, God told me to go and preach the gospel. And that's exactly what I did. I was on my way to kill Christians, if possible, and I ended up preaching the gospel. And then in Jerusalem. So he leaves Damascus. He spends three years in, in the wilderness of Arabia. Where does he go? He goes back to Jerusalem the most hostile place on the planet for the message that he's going to preach. Throughout the countryside of Judea, so in the northern part of that countryside of Judea is the place that he now is, Caesarea Maritima on the coast. Also to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul, as he's made these journeys, as he's traveled around the Aegean Sea, um, he's about to start his final journey to Rome. He's made his first missionary journey. He's made his second missionary journey. He's on the end of his third missionary journey. He's about to start his last one as he heads to Rome. He's he's gone into Gentile territory, the places that uh, the Greeks had, had really had a stronghold. The Romans had had a stronghold. He's gone to Macedonia. He's gone to what we call modern day Turkey. So he's been to all of the churches of Revelation. He's been to Ephesus, he's been to Colossae, he's been to Laodicea. He's preached the gospel in all these places. He's done exactly what you would not do as a Pharisee. He said, I believed it so much, I went and did it. That they should, now notice this, because when you look at the the way the gospel went forth, uh, it's pretty consistent that they should repent and turn to God and do deeds consistent with repentance. Sound like anybody you know? What was the message of John the Baptist as he's standing in the River Jordan? Repent and do the works of repentance. Jesus actually turned to the Pharisees who also met him there, and he said, oh, no, 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 don't you come down here to be baptized with John's baptism. You first go do the works of repentance. And then he called him a nice thing, a brood of vipers. Jesus said the same thing. Peter said the same thing. As we began the book of Acts, look at Peter's sermon. He's standing, there's thousands of Jewish people in front of him. He says, look, this Jesus whom you put to death, whom God raised from the dead. And and the men of the city tore their garments and cut themselves. What are we to do with this? They repented and they believed. What he had begun in Damascus was now spreading throughout all of the region. And and as Paul progresses from Jerusalem to Judea, and ultimately uh, he's now got his eye on the prize because he, he was sent to the Gentiles. As crazy as it sounds to us. Now, if we happen to have any rocket scientists in here tonight, If you're a rocket scientist, you would think that God might send you to minister to rocket scientists. Amen? 
because you could identify with how they think and how they reason. And most of us don't sit around doing mathematics all day, every day for a living. Uh, we, we, would, we would have a tough time. You would think that God would send rocket scientists to go minister to rocket scientists. So what does God do? God takes the rocket scientist Paul and sends him to go minister to somebody in food service. He, he, he like just completely blows up everything rational about how we would normally proceed as humankind. We say, okay, this is a strength, this is something I do well, so God, I know you're going to send me to take my strength and use it to minister to people who think like I do. That's what we would generally do. So what does God do? God says, I'm going to send you to people that currently you don't even like. I'm going to give you an opportunity to be a little bit like Jonah in that case. Remember, Jonah's issue was not so much he didn't trust God or believe God. He actually so much believed God that he knew if he preached the good news that people would get saved. He says, I hate these guys so much, I don't want them getting saved, so I'm not going to go preach the message to them. I believe that would be exactly the heart that initially the Apostle Paul said. Even if it's true, I don't want them to know it. I want them to perish. Because they're not me. They're not us. They don't believe what we believe. And so Paul calls calls for a personal conversion experience. And as he communicates these things, he's just simply revealing what God has said. God spoke to him on the road, and he's just revealing what God said on the road. He's not making up his own story. That's why I get a lot of, you know, like invitations to conferences and, you know, series that we can read, and then we do the whole series here in the sanctuary, and I'm, I'm kind of always amazed at the lack of Bible that's in a lot of these things. And I'm not necessarily saying that they're inherently wrong. I'm just saying very often it's like you have to have this person's material and, and it's like, the Word of God is sufficient. We need to know what God's Word says on anything and everything. Some people have a great understanding, and they can help, under, help us to understand. But look, Paul just simply says, look, I'm going to repeat what was said to me by the Lord. And when you read God's Word and you share God's Word with other people, you're doing the very same thing that the Apostle Paul did. You're just saying, thus says the Lord in that regard. Here's what God's already said. I know that's true, so I'll give you the truth. And so we see three excuses, and the same excuses still abound. I want you to look at these things. Festus basically is saying, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm too smart for this. Notice verse 21. And some Jews arrested me, Paul says, in the temple for preaching this. They tried to kill me, but God protected me. And so I'm still alive today to tell everyone these facts, from the least to the greatest. And I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. You see how he appeals to their sensibilities, being Jewish men who understood what we would call the first five books, the Pentateuch. He says, here's what the Torah says. Here's what the prophets had to say. Here's what Moses said. When he authored the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Genesis, those first five books that are attributed to Moses, what they would have studied for their whole life, he says, look, I'm just telling you, I'm repeating what was said to you. It's not anything new. That the Messiah would suffer and be the first one to be raised from the dead as a light to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike. He says, look, that's what you believe. That's what the Jewish people believed. They just didn't believe it was Jesus that was fulfilling that prophecy. He just gave simple obedience to that powerful calling. He got arrested for it. Notice what is said in verse 24. And then suddenly Festus shouted, Paul, I love how the New Living puts this, you are insane. Too much study has made you crazy. You spent way too much time studying your Bible. You actually believe this stuff. 
People are going to call you that. They're going to say, you, you went to church on Sunday night? Are you crazy? I mean, do you realize how much great television is on right now? You see, people are still saying the same thing. People are going to look at what you believe, what I believe, what the church teaches, what the gospel plainly is. And here's the simple truth of it. I believe that Jesus Christ is God's own son. And I believe that he is one of one. There has never been another, and there will never be another. That he was born to a couple from Nazareth. The husband was needing to be registered, so he went to his home city, Bethlehem, exactly as the Old Testament said he would. That he was born into the tribe of Judah. That he'd be registered in the city of those who were of Judah. Very specific stuff. And then the city's named in the Old Testament. City of Bethlehem. The house of bread. You see, we still believe the same thing. And people are like, wow, you know, this whole gospel thing. I mean, really? Yeah, really. And they're going to give you the, the fastest excuse. Well, that's just dumb. It's not convenient for me to believe that truth. I got too much invested in this world. Verse 25, Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking of sober truth. Indeed, the king knows these things. You see, Agrippa would have had an understanding of the prophetic word of God. As a man who was raised at least understanding the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and certainly the first five books of Moses. King knows these things, and I speak to him freely, for I'm certain that none of these things has escaped his notice. This is not done in a corner. You know, it wasn't like this whole life that Jesus lived was a mystery to anybody. It was the news for three and a half years. King Agrippa do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. He said, look, you, you actually already believe as a Jewish man in exactly what I'm telling you. And so Paul gives him that place that kind of touches the reasonableness of our faith. You know, sometimes people will say, well, you know, I just can't, you know, evolution has proved that, you know, there's no God. I love it when they say stuff like that. I go, really? Are you sure? Are you positive? You're absolutely certain that nothing can become something and explode. And then get very, very, very ordered. And if you give it enough time, it'll eventually turn from single-celled organisms into you. You're positive on that, right? Well, I, you know, I don't really know. Well, come on now. You've got to be intellectually honest. Tell me if you believe that or not. Because there's an alternate story. And it involves a creator God who created the universe and everything in it exactly as you see it. And oh, by the way, it takes a whole lot less faith than what you believe. And so they start to think, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Good, I'm glad you don't, you're not sure. Paul's using that tactic right here. I, I know you believe. You've got to believe. What do you believe? That's the question. What do you believe? Because people will argue with you and kind of go toe-to-toe with you, and they'll ask, you know, well, this whole faith thing, I don't, I don't really believe in faith. Oh, yes, you do. You exercise faith every day. 
Every single day when you get on the freeway, you exercise faith. Every day, every time. You don't have any idea who's driving next to you. For all you know, that person is blind and they stole a car. And they kind of drive like they're blind and stole a car. You don't know. You have no idea. None whatsoever. I like to throw this at people when they're about ready to get on a plane. Did you build that plane? Do you know for sure that it actually is airworthy? You don't have any idea. You have faith that a whole bunch of people who maintain that plane have done so properly, that it's been fueled, that the pilot is competent, the co-pilot is competent, that there's nothing wrong with it. It didn't have any type of damage done to it in its last flight. You have tons of faith and you're expressing your faith by getting in that airplane. For somebody to say, I don't, I don't believe in faith, is absolutely intellectually dishonest because we express faith every single day. The question is, in what or in whom do you have faith? Because you absolutely do have faith in some measure. Who do you have faith in? Then I usually tell them about Jesus. Let me tell you about the one who can save you by faith. Because right now you're just flying by faith. But your eternity can be taken care of by faith. And that's the message that the Apostle Paul is now unveiling. And then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? He's like, he knows where Paul's going. Paul's pulled no punches. People still resist the truth. People still don't want to hear it. Even when you get to the the point to where they don't have a good argument against the gospel. You're, You're forcing them into a place. Paul responds in verse 29. He says, short time or long, I pray that God not only for you, but for all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. He's presenting them with the opportunity to to make a decision to follow Christ. So for a little while, for a brief time, long time, doesn't matter. No matter how long you drag this out, the answer to your eternity is going to be the same. The question is, will you believe or not? The Felix excuse, I'm too involved in other things. I, I got stuff to do. I'm too busy. I just got too much going on. It's not convenient for me right now. You're going to get that excuse still today. The Festus excuse, I'm too smart to believe that. I'm not convinced of the argument. You see, you believe by faith, not by intellectual argument. But your intellectual argument can make a case that your faith is reasonable. And the Agrippa excuse. (laughs) She realized who I am? I mean, I'm a big deal. I'm important. Stuff like this Jesus thing, that doesn't concern me. I mean, I got a business to run. This is a city, you know, I'm in charge of all of this. I mean, I realize my wife is my sister, but, you know, I'm a big deal. The Apostle Paul says, look, the answer for the person who says it's not convenient is Jesus. The answer for the person who says I'm too intelligent, I'm not convinced, the answer is Jesus. The person who's too important, self-absorbed, the answer is Jesus. There's no other gospel, there's no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. It's his name that's going to cause people to bow their knee. And so when you think of the Apostle Paul, And I want you to notice that it's crazy what God is doing right now. Because you remember back in chapter 23, the Lord comes alongside of Paul and he says, I'm going to have you preach the gospel in Rome. Now, you and I would have said, okay, cool, you're going to get me a first class ticket 
on a nice cruise liner and I'm going to cruise the Aegean and then I'm going to go up and uh, I'm going to eventually go around the little shoe there on the bottom of Italy and I'm going to land at Putoli and then I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to travel the Appian Way. I'm going to go on the King's Highway and then I'll get to go to Rome and I'm going to, you know, you map the whole thing out. I'm going to stay at some nice hotels and I'm going to eat well and I'm going to see people get saved. You see, that's how you and I would think about it. But God knows exactly what he's doing. Oh, Paul's going to go to Rome for sure. But before he ever gets there, he's going to preach to thousands of people. Because he's going to have no choice but to preach to thousands of people. He's going to be defending the gospel in front of Agrippa, in front of Felix, in front of Augustus. You, you see, as you are questioned about your faith, you have to look at it the way Paul now looks at it. It's just an opportunity. It's a place where you get to speak the name of the Lord to people as they are kind of a captive audience. Verse 30, and then the king, the governor, Bernice, and all the others stood and left. And as they talked it over, they agreed, this man hasn't done anything worthy of death or imprisonment. Now I want you to notice that. The conclusion after the Apostle Paul presents his argument is, the guy's innocent. Same words that were said about Jesus are said about the Apostle Paul. Find no fault in this man. There's nothing there. So here's the crazy thing. And then verse 32. And then Agrippa said to Festus, he could be set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. In other words, Paul himself actually is the reason that he's going to end up going to Rome. You, you see, if he had wanted to get out of this, he could have said something, but he doesn't. Because Paul trusted God. He believed that God was sending him to Rome. And so he takes perfect opportunity, every situation that comes to him on his journey. And, and the amazing thing is, is 320 years later or so, Christianity will actually become, because of the Apostle Paul, Christianity will become the official religion of Rome. It, it, the history of it, Emperor Theodosius becomes the, the first person to make the actual decree that, look, Christianity uh, is the official religion of the Roman Empire. All because the Apostle Paul wouldn't back down. Because the gospel did go to the Gentiles. It does go to Rome. As we finish up this amazing book, we'll see Paul on his all-expense-paid trip uh, to the Roman capital, the capital of Rome. Amen? Would you stand? Let's pray together. Worship team's going to come back out. Got one song. And then we'll close. We'll have some pastors come forward. Maybe you got somebody that you've been sharing the gospel with and they're making one of these three excuses and you just want to pray for them. Some pastors come forward. Come on up and just lift that person up. Maybe they think they're too smart to receive Christ. Maybe they are thinking there's a better time. Not right now, isn't it? Or maybe they're too important. Or maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you came here and you're wondering about this gospel thing. What is it? Well, it's that Jesus Christ actually came to this earth as a man lived a sinless life. He died on Calvary's cross. He was buried in the grave. He was raised three days later. And he is the only name whereby men can be saved. And he's inviting you tonight to commit your life to him, to invite him into your life to be your Savior and your Lord, to free you from the bondage of sin and his penalty death. So if that's you, pastors would love to pray with you for you to receive Christ for you to know him. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the incredible example of the Apostle Paul. And Lord, as we finish up our time here in the book of Acts, as we now will turn our face towards Rome as the Apostle uh, boards a ship with all kinds of peril that lies ahead of him. Lord, he could have gotten out of it right there in Caesarea, but he didn't.
Uh, He was bold to the end. And Lord, we pray that we'd be bold to the end of our lives, uh, continuing to preach that one message that can say that you, Jesus, are the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by you. We thank you for the simplicity of that message. Help us to present it to people who think it's not convenient, it's not intelligent, or maybe they're too important. But we know that you love even those who are rejecting you. And so, God, we pray that you'd reach out with your arms of love and touch those who do not know you. Even here tonight, Lord, make us your missionaries to that end. Send us out to make disciples of all nations. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.